Father God, you know our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our frailty and our weakness. You know our sin. And as we approach this psalm this morning, we acknowledge it is not easy to think and talk about these things. And yet we do so in confidence that your son Jesus has taken the sin of your people on his shoulders, taken the judgment we deserve. Help us therefore to be honest before you this morning as we study these words. Would you speak to us and point us to Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Well, a little over a hundred years ago, the Times newspaper decided to ask various authors and statesmen of the time a simple question. What is wrong with the world today? And people responded in all kinds of ways. Some pointed to the lack of education for all, some to the inequalities between rich and poor, some to the actions of world leaders making the world unstable. What would people today say? What would you say? Today we might talk about global warming, the lack of consideration for the planet and future generations. There would no doubt be plenty more talk about inequality and world leaders, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. A hundred years ago, the author G.K. Chesterton was one of the men asked by the Times for an answer to that question. And his uh, now infamous response went like this. Dear Sir, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world, I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. Do you agree with that? Not not that the problem with the world is G.K. Chesterton, but that the problem with the world is you. It's me. Not everyone would agree with that. One of the company values of eBay is that people are basically good. They put this on their website. You can read about it if you want to read what is driving eBay, the way they they make their decisions. And they say that their business model is based on that assumption. Now, whether that works for them is another question. But as far as the Bible is concerned, that is a wrong assumption to make about human beings. And the psalm that we are looking at this morning, Psalm 51, gets to the heart of that issue. The title gives us the context. The title of these psalms are part of the psalm itself. They're not like the titles in italics that you get in the rest of the Bible, which are added by the translators to break up the text and make it more readable. We don't usually read those titles when we read the Bible out, but we should read these titles in the psalms because they're there in the original language, and they help us to understand that this Psalm 51 is not just a random psalm about confession of sin. It arose from a very specific context. 
which is a notorious event in the Old Testament story, when good King David, great King David, the recipient of God's promises, when he seriously, seriously messed up. What had he done? He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, as the title says. The story is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it may just help to flick back to that uh, briefly. It's on page 314, 314. Let me just read you the first few verses which tell us what happened. In the spring, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 of 2 Samuel, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent words to David saying, I am pregnant. So we just get the kind of facts here of what happened, don't we? He... he, commits adultery, that much is clear. Actually, even the question of whether Bathsheba consents to what happens is not really clear, is it, if you you look? I think this is the kind of behaviour that would make David fit right in with the worst of today's Hollywood directors. Anyone who misuses their position of power for sexual gain is a very contemporary thing, isn't it? Because arguably when the king summoned her to his bedroom, how could she say no? And this is great King David. This is the one God had chosen over bad King Saul. And next it gets worse, you see, in the the rest of the chapter 11, I won't read it out, but we read how David arranges for Bathsheba's soldier husband Uriah to be at the fiercest point of the battle against the Ammonites, so as to guarantee that he would be killed. And that is what happens. And the final sentence of chapter 11 is chilling. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so then the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David, and he tells this story to David about a rich man with loads of sheep and cattle, beginning of chapter 12, and and there's a poor man with a single ewe, a a ewe lamb. And a traveller comes to visit the rich man, and instead of giving him one of his many sheep and cattle to feed him, he takes the poor man's single ewe lamb and he slaughters it for a meal. And David hears the story, and he thinks he's hearing a real story about something that has taken place in Israel. Because one of the king's jobs is to judge between two parties who are quarrelling. And he says, well, the rich man should die. And even more than that, if that's possible, he should pay 
for the ewe lamb four times over for doing such a wicked thing. And then in one of the most dramatic moments of the Old Testament narratives, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And God has seen your sin and calamity is going to come upon you. Now, of course, the law of Moses said that the punishment for adultery was death and so was the punishment for murder. And this is the king. This is King David. What a wicked, wicked thing for him to do. And so we then we read into Samuel, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13. And in the second half of that single verse we read, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. And we think, what? Surely this is a scandal. How can the Lord just take away his sin just like that? Well, it's only in the light of the New Testament that such extraordinary grace makes sense. Because in the New Testament we see how no sin goes unpunished. Justice will be done. Justice has been done. For those who trust in Jesus, the punishment for their sin was taken by him on the cross. That is how God can forgive David here. And that is how God can forgive us. And in Psalm 51, what we get is David's account from the inside, if you like. What it felt like to be both the one who had sinned and the one who repented and received that forgiveness. So let's turn back to Psalm 51, page 573. The whole context for this psalm is verse 1, God's love and compassion. He prays in the light of those things. Today we can only pray a prayer like this in the face of our sin. We can only pray it in the light of the cross in the light of the mercy we know is available there. If we're honest, we will, we will all know that there, there are times when all of us need to pray a prayer like this. It may be because of something like David's sexual sin. It may be other situations where we are confronted with the reality of our sinful hearts, acts of selfishness, anger, Malice, rage, envy, spite. This is where we need to turn. Let's see how David spells out what confession looks like. First of all, deep confession from verses 1 to 6. In the light of God's love and mercy, what does David confess? Well, look at verses 1 to 3. Can you see what word gets repeated more than any other in those verses? You see what it is? What word gets repeated more than any other? My. My transgressions. My iniquity. My sin. My transgressions again. My sin again. What is he doing? He's owning his sin. He admits it is his and it's no one else's. 
So look what he's not saying. He's not saying things like, mistakes were made. The classic politician's apology. Not, I deeply regret the situation that we now find ourselves in. Not, well, I'm so sorry that you feel bad about what's happened. Not, well, what do you expect to happen if a woman is bathing naked on a balcony? Well, she should have covered up. She must have known she would be visible. Not, oh, go ahead and prove that I caused Uriah's death. You won't be able to because I made sure of it. None of those things. This is me. This is my sin. Have mercy on me. How often do we seek to minimise our own blame, our own guilt in some way? You know, it it was an accident. I I didn't really mean it. I'm tired. If you hadn't said that, or or you hadn't done that, well, well, I wouldn't have responded in this way. No excuses. This is my sin, David says. Here's a picture of that which might help. Here's a bottle. And uh, I'm going to take the lid off. It's got some water in it. Now, watch what happens if I do this. Just a little bit. Okay. Why did water come out of the bottle? Seems obvious. Well, I shook the bottle. Water came out of the bottle because I shook it up. Well, you could say that. Or you could say, actually, the reason water came out of the bottle is because there is water in the bottle. See, if there wasn't any water in the bottle, you could shake it as much as you like and no water would come out. See, so often our focus, when we think about our sin, is the external shaking. Do you see? The external things that happen to us. He said that, she did that to me, that's why water came out, as it were. That's why rage and misplaced anger came out of me. It's their fault, not mine. But the fact is, rage and misplaced anger only come out because they're in there in the first place. This is my sin, David says. More than that, David then acknowledges that in his sin, the primary person who has been hurt is God, verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now I think, if we think about this in the context of our culture today, I think we find this very hard to get our heads round. Because here we have Bathsheba. She was hurt by David. She may not have consented in one sense. This could be a form of rape. Uriah was killed. The baby that was born from their union died, as if you read on in the narrative there. There were very real social consequences beyond that from David's sin that are spelt out through the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. In one sense, this is the beginning of the unravelling of everything. And by the end of the book, David is on the run. His sons have turned against him. Uh, there, is, there is more rape. There is more murder. 
and it's a terrible situation. So it is not the case that David's sin has no consequence on the people around him. It has huge consequences on the people around him. But David says, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. Now what does this tell us? It reminds us that the issue with sin is not just that it sort of breaks a rule, which is how we often think about sin. Actually, the, the issue is what it says of our heart attitude to the God who made us and who designed us and who knows what is best for us in our lives. Because actually, our world, if you think about it, our culture is quite happy with a definition of sin that says it's all about what hurts other people. Isn't that true? And and, and therefore, any behaviour that doesn't hurt anybody else, well, that's fine. And we regularly hear that uh, argument, that sort of thing, in the area of sexual ethics today. You see, you Christians, you're just obsessed with rules. Well, why does it matter if two people who love each other and mutually consent want to sleep together? The only time when it's a problem, the world says, is when there's no consent. But David shows that the real issue is much deeper. The issue is our heart's attitude to the God who made us. And in the context of sexual ethics, the God who says where the right place for sexual relations is within marriage. Now Freud says everything is about sex. Actually, the Bible says the issue is much deeper than that. See, sexual sin is just a symptom. And actually, that means that then that sexual sin actually is no different from any other sin. From lust, from selfish rage, from jealousy, from greed. You see, all of these things are symptoms of a heart attitude that says, I'm in charge. I can decide what is right and wrong. I don't need God telling me that. That's what all of our sins does in different ways. And so David says, my sin, which in one sense was against my neighbour, is more fundamentally a sin against you, Lord, the God who made me. Whatever is going on then, whether it's sleeping with someone you're not married to or coveting someone or something that is not ours or attempting to satisfy ourselves through the accumulation of more and more stuff, more and more money in the bank account just for the sake of it. In all of these situations, the underlying problem is the same. This is sin against God. And then he goes on, verse 5, this is my true Nature. You see, I've always been like this. I'm just living out what I'm naturally like. This isn't quite a full statement of what is sometimes called original sin, but it is compatible with it. I'm not naturally good. eBay haven't got it right, it's saying. I am totally flawed from beginning to end. I'm in desperate need of mercy. So David makes his deep confession. His sin is his. It's his only. It is primarily a sin against the God who made him. It is his true nature. It's how he's always been. And then secondly, verses 7 to 12, 
we see deep cleansing. Look at what he asks for. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Verse 10, creating me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. What does he need? Well, he needs an entirely new heart. He needs to be cleansed on the inside. Hyssop was a, a plant used in various Old Testament cleansing rituals. David is saying, I need that to happen on the inside. See, this is the logical conclusion of what we've seen in the first six verses. If the problem is not the world around me, but me, myself, well, something inside me needs to change. So if we go back to the bottle, it turns out the water in this bottle is not just water, it is poison. It needs to be dealt with, it needs to be cleaned out, it needs to be neutralised. See, so often instead of acknowledging that, we try to fix the problem by ourselves. We try to address the symptom, but not the heart. <clears throat> Think about it. Isn't, isn't it striking that a prayer that is in response to David's grave sexual sin, actually, having put that in the title, doesn't mention sexual sin at all? Isn't that a bit odd? See, we, we, what we might expect David to pray is, Lord, next time I'm on the roof at night... Please help my eyes not to stray to neighbouring balconies. In fact, I'm going to put up some sort of barriers to stop that from happening. And, and our response to, the, to, to things like this can be the same. You know, we, our response can be all about new boundaries, about accountability, about internet settings, or, or whatever it might be. Lord, please help me to turn off the computer before 10.30pm. Lord, I have deleted her number from my phone, please help me not to go looking for it again. Or with rage and anger, we might think, I, I need to get to bed earlier, that will sort me out, I'm just tired. I need to spend less time with that person because they really wind me up. Lord, please help me not to shout. Now all of those things can be helpful in their place, but actually none of them really get to the heart of the issue. See, in one sense, they're just sticking plaster for sores which are caused by a deep and deadly disease. And so David gets to the heart, literally. He says, Lord, change my heart. Cleanse me. Wash me. And you see, that is precisely what Christians know for sure has been offered to us through Jesus' death. Remember Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night and asks how to enter the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. This is what Jesus is talking about. A new start, a new heart, cleansed within by the Spirit and on the outside as a symbol of that by the waters of baptism. In, in, in the face of the reality of deep and grave sin, what we need to do is throw ourselves on God's mercy. We need a new heart. And if you're here today and you've never done that, that is something you can do today. You can receive that today simply by trusting in Jesus. That's what he asks us to do. <clears throat> he promises he will give us a new heart and a new start. But what about if we are already Christians? 
Some people say this kind of prayer that David prays is inappropriate for a Christian. Well, you've been forgiven, it's time to move on. Yet that's not how the Bible speaks about the Christian life. You see, we begin the Christian life with forgiveness. Forgiveness for living our our life our own way without reference to God. And then we go on through the Christian life with forgiveness, receiving it daily. We're like a broken down, derelict house. On the day we become a Christian, we pass to new ownership. The long task of rebuilding, repainting, tidying begins room by room. See, from time to time, the old owner will attempt to reoccupy the house. He or she will take up residence again in one of the rooms for a while, but the new owner is in control. In the end, they will have to go. And that process of refurbishment and rebuilding involves a daily process of confession of sin and receiving forgiveness again, room by room. The second reading that we heard from 1 John spells that out. In 1 John, that that is a Christian talking to Christians about what walking in the light looks like. And he says to Christians who are walking in the light, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. He's not talking to non-Christians then, he's talking to Christians who are seeking to walk the Christian life. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we confess our sin... God is faithful and will forgive us. That is what life, walking in the light, looks like. Receiving forgiveness, receiving a fresh start every day. So are we aware of ongoing sin, ongoing battles and temptations? The refurbishment, the rebuilding, the reordering of our hearts starts with confession. And God will cleanses. That is what he promises. We need deep cleansing. But then thirdly, we come to deep joy. Deep joy. This thought begins in verse 12. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. And that joy is then spelt out in terms of teaching others and telling others about the forgiveness that he's received. This is evangelism, isn't it? it, it it's not Good people telling bad people how to live better. But it's sinners sharing with other sinners where forgiveness can be found. Someone put it like this. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. When you're a beggar who's found bread, a sinner who's found forgiveness, how can you not share that with others around you? That is what David is saying. So verse 15, if you look. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise because... I've been forgiven. Then my life will be one of service and sacrifice. Not ritual sacrifice, but wholehearted devotion. That's what he's saying in those final verses. Because I deserve nothing but wrath, but I get grace. That is the flip side of realising that the sins we commit are just a symptom of a deeper heart issue, a deeper rebellion against God. If that is true, it's also true that the fruit of the Spirit and the good works we're called to do only flow from a changed heart, from a forgiven heart. 
So evangelism training, for example, is not first of all about new techniques and ways of explaining the gospel. It's about getting the heart in gear. Remembering that I am a sinner. My sin runs deep to my core. And yet God has forgiven me. He loves me anyway. He's given me a new heart in Christ. That is the best news ever. How can I not share it? That is the best evangelism training anybody can get. If we're looking then for joy, come back to the gospel. Remember how little we deserve, how much we've been given. It's often said we're more wicked than we ever imagined, but more loved than we ever dreamed. It's very hard to grumble or feel sorry for ourselves when we're standing at the foot of the cross. We are what is wrong with the world. The human consequences of our sin may stay with us in different ways, but as we look to eternity, we can know mercy and hope, not because of anything in us, but because in Christ, God gives grace even to people like us, the chiefs of sinners. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on these words, please would you bring to light in our hearts ways in which we need to cry out afresh for mercy. Would you have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love? According to your great compassion, would you blot out our transgressions? If there's something in particular that we need to seek you for, maybe we need to do that in the company of somebody else. Help us to do that, to find the time and the place to make that happen. We praise you that what we find here ultimately are words of great hope. When we face up to our sin, we can go to the cross. We can find forgiveness. Help us to do that afresh today. And especially if there's anyone here who's not yet done that, would you enable them to do that today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.